0: For most of these business transactions, it's a financial decision. There's no such thing as a perfect business. If they have that much confidence and ego in doing it, i just let them know. They're like, well, you're almost there. We're gonna see one of the greatest wealth transfers in American history. The employee's the most important part of the business. It's making those business dreams come true. That's my like monikers. I realize that I just wanna help you for the rest of my life.
1: Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of profession session my goal with this podcast is to expose you to incredible entrepreneurs so that you can hear more about the mindset behind their success as well as some of the tactics that have allowed them to achieve the success if you've ever gotten value from this or if you get value from this episode i encourage you to like subscribe and especially to share this podcast with as many people as you can so that it can help other aspiring entrepreneurs to have the kinds of success that these ones have had Thank you so much and enjoy this episode. To set the stage a little bit and give a little bit of context, could you tell me a little bit about just how you came to be at Transworld to begin with? Like, what got you into the space?
0: Yeah, um, I kind of just happened into this. It's uh, got a weird career path that led me here, it makes me pretty good at it. Um, my first start uh, right out of high school was I worked full time at Les Schwab, where I get a degree in economics from the University of Oregon. Um, Les Schwab was a great foundation for a young person right out of high school to learn about business and life and how to treat people, employees, customers, uh, and build a lifetime value was a big thing that Les taught us. Uh, then I was uh, an analyst for a bank and a credit union, worked for some big Fortune 500 food companies. Then um, my first taste of brokering was actually buying and selling these uh, food territories and helping manage them and uh that was a lot of fun um then uh ran into some health things uh moved back home to get healthy not die and uh got my mba then shortly after my mba uh this popped up on my radar and then been doing this ever since it's year four and loving it i gotta use all my nerdy business skill sets to just help people and to help people get into businesses and get out of businesses like you said i was just kind of that uh Matchmaker.
1: It's interesting that this came from the need to kind of rearrange things, kind of start from scratch and get healthy. I've actually heard that a few times in the brokerage world, that becoming a broker came out of some need to, whether it be moving or some kind of big life change where someone just realized, wow, I need to, I need to just do things a little bit differently. It's a, it's just a very high leverage area of business i mean you the things that you do and the the actions that you take can go very far in this world what was it specifically that h- kind of helped put it on your radar and bring you into the world of brokerage and exit planning
0: oh boy that's easy to answer <laughs> uh, i was there was no way I was going back in the corporate world ever like i had a good run learned a lot of things but it's a highly toxic environment and um yeah, you're really working for shareholders, that kind of stuff. And uh, I said, ran on some health issues, came back home, and then uh, about halfway through my MBA, I realized that I just want to help people for the rest of my life. And uh, um, then, ironically, this just, or apropos, or luckily blessed, whatever you want to call it, this came on my radar, and I just uh, got to use all my you know accrued educations and experiences just to to help people because that's all I do. It's just uh, for both sides. It's just to series of conversations with sellers to get them ready to get their business ready to sell it's a series of conversations with buyers on the other end and that's uh very little pressure just uh, just business planning is all it is And every stage of this is just business planning and execution and and then uh, check and adjusting and, and yeah and i love it it's, it's so much fun it's a lot of fun
1: one thing that we have kind of shared in common with a lot of our conversations that a really big connecting point i've found is a lot of what i talk about to business owners and potential sellers and people who have already decided that they wanted to sell is but especially the people who may be a little on the fence or maybe even against the concept of it is whether or not you want to sell ever or not you're everyone's going to exit their business at some point whether it be planned or unplanned And the types of things that go into exit planning also happen to just be good business. If you think about positioning a business as an asset that a buyer would want, they just want a good business that runs well. So if you plan around that and take the actions to position a business to sell, it kind of just sets you up for success and and helps the business run a little bit smoother. I think we're going to get into a lot of the specifics of what kind of things go into that. But what would you say are maybe the top few things that you see sellers underprepared for if they do get into the exit planning process?
0: Well, I would say all of it, just as a blanket statement. Like uh, usually owners are so busy in their business, it's hard for them to think about what exit looks like. And when people think of exit, they think about like the very last stage and you, nailed it just a second ago when you said exit planning is just good business planning. In fact, I think that's the moniker for the Exit Planning Institute, where I'm a certified exit planning advisor. That's all they teach is that business the exit planning is just good business planning. In fact, you can, with a little bit of exit planning strategies, like getting the firing yourself from being the CEO, you can actually have that business longer because I'd say most of the sellers that come to me just had a series of bad days or like really Couple hard years to just, you know, get their butts kicked. Working really hard, employee issues, et cetera, et cetera. And usually they're just uh, they're burned out. So they talk to me, and some of them are ready to sell, just because out of necessity. And some of them start putting some of these plans into place. And you know that I I essentially fire myself from a listing, but you know I'll get the listing down the road, and that's that's totally fine too.
1: Now there's a little bit of a paradox that I've come across. I maybe I'm using the right word for that there, maybe not, but uh, a little bit of a problem I come across pretty consistently when talking to the type of seller that you just described, someone who's had maybe a couple bad days or a couple bad years or months even, and they're just like, I've got to get out of this thing. I can't do it anymore. A lot of times that same person will say, well, I I don't know how I'm going to do this extra work to prepare for an exit when I'm already at this point, but there are things that they need to do to get the best value out of the business. What do you usually tell people in that position?
0: Well, um, usually it's in the follow-up conversation. Usually initial conversations is talking about the broad strokes of what it looks like to get out of a business and what it looks like to get out of a business in a hurried state. Usually they're just about ready to throw a grenade at it. In fact, that's what I call the grenade stage of uh, a seller that's been in their business too long. Or and um, once in a while I come across an owner that just, just literally that's what they did. They fired everybody, or they're gonna fire everybody, or whatever. But um, usually we have a conversation and then uh, follow up conversations about the importance of doing this. And and it can be tailored to that specific business. I mean, let's just say it's a business that makes a lot of money. Well then. They need to hire a CEO or hire some key people, promote some key people. And that just taking some stuff off their plate, like frees up the seller or the owner just to have a better work-life balance, just to not be as drained, you know? So we start working on the immediate things. If the initial pain is that they're in their business 12 hours a day, it's like, well, what can they immediately get rid of? Are there some menial tasks that they can just have somebody else do? purchasing. I mean, there's some more higher level tasks that might take more training, but some things like if they're doing bookkeeping, like that's an easy thing to outsource. There's lots of good bookkeepers around like outsource that you don't need to do your own bookkeeping, you know, for 50, 60, 70 bucks an hour or whatever it is, you can get a good bookkeeper that frees you up to go do the $1,000 an hour work like generating sales or managing strategic direction.
1: Now, a common objection I hear a lot of potential sellers or people who are against it say to me when I broach this subject is I'll hear people say, well, there are things I do in my business that no one could ever do as well as me. I I have a one-of-one skill set that's been developed over years, and I, I've heard every level and and kind of direction of that. What do you usually say to someone who is in a position like that where they think, I couldn't possibly hand these these things off and there's no way for me to do that.
0: Well, I can be a little angry at times and I just <laughs> would say like, well, how do you plan on selling this? If you're the only person out of the 8 billion that can do this, like, I guess you're just going to have to close up the doors and sell off the assets since there's nobody else that could do it. Then they start thinking like, well, I guess I could train somebody like, yeah, that, that's what it is. It's transitioning the, the knowledge gap either to your current employees or if you don't want to train your current employees, you're going to have to stay on an extended period to train a buyer, you know?
1: Yeah, so I like that, to, oh, go ahead. Sorry to interrupt there.
0: Say, yeah, that's uh, that's pretty common at some level. Usually they're not like, they, I'm the only person on the planet, but a lot of times they're like, yeah, I'm the only person in this business that can do this. It's like, well, probably, you know, if you don't have, if nobody in your employee pool can take half your responsibilities, then you need to hire from outside. Get a recruiter, get get a CEO level kind of person in your business and teach them half of what you do and then get yourself in a position where you're working on your business.
1: I love the note of getting a recruiter too because that's something that I think is not on many people's radars. That There's many business owners that don't even realize that's an option. I happen to kind of come from that space actually. I think I told you when we first met that I came from the staffing and recruiting world. so. That's something that I'm a little bit more comfortable with that idea than a lot of people I've noticed. But one kind of frame of reference I love to think about is that anything like when you start to think about your business as just an asset full of assets and you realize that by investing in a recruiter, while it is going to be expensive, investing in a recruiter that can take out the guesswork and the risk of hiring the wrong person that's a really powerful asset in your business that actually adds like an outsized amount of potential sale value when you actually go to sell it. It's I think a lot of people get caught up on the cost of something like that. Or I mean there's a there's many different examples of things like that. Investing in some big software is another example. I have a client right now in the architecture space where he there's two systems that he kind of inherently knows that he needs to invest in and we're actively looking to sell his business. And he knows that he needs to invest in these two systems, but there's just the the thousand, the multi-thousand dollar spend is just something that was holding him back. But when I started putting it in terms of, hey, if you do have that system put in place, that's a piece of negotiating power that's gonna really add a lot of firepower to your sale price and your valuation because they can see that the systems are already in place and they don't have to guess and and take the risk of doing that i think just framing it in that way really helps buyers and sellers kind of recognize that
0: that is fantastic yeah it's uh you hire the experts to do it for you like if you sit there and like How can I find somebody that can effectively run this business that I built from scratch? It's like, well, you hire somebody to help you to do that. Just like you hire a CPA to help you with your taxes. Somebody that knows that space.
1: A lot of business owners, I think, get caught up in their own ego and think that they're just the best at everything, but they don't realize that if you try to do everything, you can't actually grow the business. What what would you say just in your time as a broker and in this space, what are the things that you think a business owner need aside from maybe the accounting what are some other things you need to immediately hire or fire yourself from to really make the kind of impact that makes you sellable
0: well i do want to comment on that the first part is that some of these sellers are probably the best but at what they're doing so is everybody going to do that ownership level job or build a multi million dollar business from scratch? Boy, I don't know. But there are some really good buyers out there that could run it really good. Are they going to be the best to build something from scratch? Probably not. That's a different skill set. What are they going to do? Take a multi million dollar business and make it bigger, more efficient? Yes, there's a lot of skill sets out there. But uh, then on the second part, there you can outsource almost everything, there's HR. You can outsource all of your HR, all your hiring, firing, outsource payroll, outsource bookkeeping, outsource marketing. There's, you can literally almost outsource everything. There's virtual assistants that can log in from a foreign country. I mean, there's local things. You can, you can bring on people on staff. You can bring people, you can outsource it to third parties. I, I can't think of a single thing that you can't outsource besides like specific expertise or technical stuff like an attorney, CPA stuff, like, eh, you know, I, uh, be, yeah, I don't know. There's, you can outsource almost every single thing in a business.
1: Yeah. And I think some of that technical stuff really with the resources that we have now to be able to create something like content or some kind of documented process, I think there's almost no excuse to to say that there's anything that you can't ha- Or even if you can't outsource it, you can can at least make it trainable, I think. If you start just breaking down some of your systems, I like to tell business owners, take a half step back and it's going to take you a little bit longer to do all of these things. But if you spend a little bit more time actually documenting the way that you're building this business and the way that you're growing this business – then it makes it all the much, all the more easier to actually train someone when you bring them on, when you hire someone, or if you were bringing on a buyer and you needed to train them and hand it off, you need to have the resources to be able to do that and plan around that. What are maybe some of the... Um, well, I'll, I'll ask a different question. One thing that came to mind as you were saying that is it's been... I think that's been kind of a frame switch that I've had just by being exposed to people who are used to making hires and taking swings like that what do you think holds people back from taking some of the big swings that they might inherently know that they need to make to grow their business but are afraid to make
0: uh they probably don't know what's the most important things to start on first like that's probably the analysis paralysis do i need a ceo do i need to outsource bookkeeping like what's keeping me trapped in my business and that's that's legitimate like you, if you're working 10 hour days then trying to reflect after a long day every single day and being like well if you're mired in the mud you probably just can't see it but if you hire a temporary business coach or just talk to a co- couple consultants or i mean find somebody in your local community or the sbdc i mean there's a lot of people out there you there's me people that can have a general conversation and just uh through conversation, you might find some like glaring things you can work on. Like, yeah, you're working 15 hours in your business, but you're checking the mail and doing doing the deliveries and answering the phone and all the stuff. I mean, like you can almost start anywhere in that example. Yeah. I, so not, not knowing where to start is the number one thing. I think what is that analysis paralysis? It's like, how do I, where do I, where do I even begin? Am I going to make a mistake and focus on one thing when it should be another? And, so that's, that's, I think that's the key factor.
1: I think that is it as well. And I, I really like the note about the SBDC. We just covered that on another podcast recently. A lot of people don't know about that. And those are all over. What are some other favorite resources of yours to refer a business owner to?
0: Here in Oregon, we have um uh, uh, which is a business catalyst. Um, SBDC is really active. Uh, Chambers of Commerce are usually pretty good um you can even start asking people that are really active in local BNI groups like we got some pretty active business coaches and if you reach out to somebody who's in BNI and be like hey do you know of a business coach I want to have somebody kind of like have a couple conversations with me and maybe coach me about my business a little bit um you can even try Google I mean like here in Eugene Springfield area there's several good business coaches some are mindset coaches some are nuts and bolts so uh, depending what your need are, uh, needs are, you know, one might be more suitable than the other. And um, I don't know, sellers and business owners, like I have a ultimate respect for They are savvy, they're sharp. And usually just a couple conversations, they're like, you see that like, aha, I got it. Then they're on their way and they start making like changes for the better immediately. It's, it's incredible.
1: It is, I I just had a business owner that is someone who wants to potentially sell down the road who I talked to maybe a month ago who actually just texted me this morning. And she told me because of some of the ways that I I put that she was doing just a, a small business doing about $10,000 a month or so on like a, a typical month. And we had a long conversation about the types of things that would need to be done if she wanted to sell. And she had shared with me that she was at the point of pretty much wanting to close the doors because she was so burned out and she just felt like it wasn't growing the way she needed to and i started to just share with her the fact that it could become sellable if she started really taking advantage of some of the the documentation that she had already done the systems that she had created because she had done a really good job of documenting some things when she had hired an employee and I had shared with her, if you just really focus on the business development for a little while and keep growing this thing and and find a few of the right clients, and it sounds like 20% of the clients you're working with are the best ones. If you focus more on those, you can make a big impact. And she just texted me this morning and said, I've signed about $27,000 in business since we talked having been at about $10,000 a month, just because of that frame switch and focusing on the, the few things that really matter, like the business development, I think um, the business development tends to be that highest leverage point. How, how do you usually come, when you come across a seller for whom the business development is what they're the best at, how does that usually go? Is that usually kind of a difficult thing to hand off um, to a buyer?
0: Um not necessarily. So that's part of the matchmaking art is that um uh, you can have ten plumbing companies with ten employees and all could be different based on the owner's roles. Like some owners might just be the analyst for the business. Some owners might be the face of the business. So what you do is try to match up to find a buyer that's gonna have the skill set to do the job and the skill set to kind of fill in the roles of the owner. You know, I got like one of my best friends is one of the best analysts I've ever met in my entire life. We worked at the bank together, but he's not a sales guy. So finding a business that the owner's in the sales role will be a lot more difficult for him. But you know, there's still, you can plan and hire that out and make changes, but you just kind of know that in your conversations.
1: What are some of the qualities that you've found the the best and most successful sellers that you've worked with all have? soft skills wise, hard skills wise, a little bit of both.
0: Um, grit, (laughs) they will bootstrap it through anything like they're, that, uh, they're usually pretty optimistic, um, and they'll get it done and they're pretty fearless about everything. Like they just be like, you know, that, uh, that Spanish. Admiral that used to land the boats and burn the ships, that's the mentality. You, You land the boats, you burn the ships and then you march. And uh, that's probably the, the, the most common quality of being the most successful, of uh, all the most successful sellers and owners that I've talked with is just, uh, they'll, they'll figure it out. Just they'll the, figure it out.
1: The optimism superpower.
0: Yeah, uh, that's number one. The number two to take that and like put nitrous oxide to it would be treating people right, whether it's your customers, your employees, hopefully both, um, some people, you know, Generally, do both. Some people got the customer thing figured out, but maybe they got some work in the employee department. But, uh, but yeah, how to treat people to build that sustainable business? You know, maybe that's not inherent. Maybe there's a young owner uh, operates a business differently versus knowing the value of treating care of your employees and then uh, you know the lifetime value of having good tenured employees and not having to constantly retrain because that's a huge loss in a business when you have turnover. You're basically restarting training, restarting resources, restarting hiring processes and time away from your, the business and stuff. So that's uh, you get getting that kind of like uh, rut. So
1: I'd like to hang on that point for a second. The, the employee point, um, just employee retention as a whole. That's one of the thing I, I shared with you that there's about 25 things that I focus on when I talk about this stuff. And that's a huge one is having good retention and methods and strategies to retain, what have been some of the the things that you have seen across all businesses that work really well as far as retention aside from just, I think it goes without saying, you have to treat your employees well and that's that's something that's just universally true of course, but to get a little bit more tactical with it, what are some maybe specific retention practices that you've come across that work really well?
0: Well in general, the employees the most important part of the business. so the retention is really key. so and think about your business and your employees and think of their opportunity cost of what else is out there. So you for specific strategies it can be pay that's an easy one. It can be other things like benefits, retirement contribution, paid time off, there's a lot of other things that will make your employees happy. And once again, it might be business specific, not even industry specific. Like if out of those five plumbing companies I was talking about, your employee profile might respond better to having a 401k contribution plan versus benefits, or if you have both, great. But sometimes if you can can just offer one or two things that your competition's not offering, then they're not likely to steal their employees. Like, you know, your plumbers aren't gonna go leave to go do HVAC. They're not gonna go leave to go turn wrench on cars. Like they're gonna leave to another plumbing company. So think about what your competition has, think about their opportunity cost and what it's gonna take to get them to stay. You know, so that, so as far as specific strategies, like that, I mean, if you work with a coach or talk with somebody, or you just know and just kind of ask your employees, ask other people that are kind of out there in the business community, be like, "Hey, what what do plumbers usually get for benefits? You know, overall, you know, what do what electricians get? Every industry has kind of its its own thing. Like one of those two trades doesn't really have paid time off. So if you offer paid time off, you know, that might be the the hooks or the incentives for people to stay.
1: Yeah. And one thing I always like to harp on is that the one thing that's true across all industries, obviously, like you mentioned, it's going to be industry specific. But the one thing that's true across all industries is that if you have conversations with your employees to help discover what it is that they need and what they want, then they'll tell you. I mean, if if they want to be there and if they enjoy their job, they'll tell you what they need. Um, You've got to strike a balance of giving them what they need and what they want within reason and within what you can afford obviously but if you have conversations strategically to to regularly figure out what it is that drives them what it is that they want you can discover those things and bring them to them because it's different for everyone too some people for some people just want to feel like they're achieving in their job they want to feel like they're growing it might be about giving them a path to the next title that they're looking for. It might be about a pay raise. It might be about the benefits, like you said, but you've got to figure out what makes the people tick and really get to know them on a personal level to find that out.
0: And it could be per department too. Like it does, if it's a big enough organization, like you might treat your office staff differently with incentives than you do the sales staff. I mean, the sales staff, uh, salespeople on average or in general, are usually, more money motivated. So maybe that performance based compensation that works for the both the win for the company is a win for the employee. Both both have to win at the same time, versus uh once a month pizza party for the office staff. I mean that might be just something that where they feel engaged, they feel appreciated and stuff. Maybe a dollar extra an hour is not gonna be as exciting for The office staff as a pizza party i'm just kind of pulling examples out of thin air but you don't it doesn't even have to be company-wide it can be granular just treating each department or each each person like you might have a rock star office person or salesperson or tech that you know that you don't want to lose and they're looking over the fence and maybe do something special for them you know because you can it makes it makes business sense but it has to make business sense because every employee wants a hundred million dollars a year for one hour a week, right? So it's that balance. And any benefit the that they can field. imagine. <laughs> yeah, and that's uh, free and open conversations, like you said, usually work out pretty well if you have a good owner and employee relationship.
1: Yeah, I think just really making sure to prioritize and maintain that relationship, it, it, just, it allows those things to stay top of mind on both sides and it allows you to be aware of them. Um, To take a little bit different direction here, I wanted to talk a little bit about just the state of the market as a whole. What are some of the most common sell structures that you're seeing right now? Because I think a lot of people don't quite understand how many different potential avenues there are, and for lack of better words, how many different ways there are to skin a cat when it comes to actually structuring the deal. What are some of the most common deal structures that you're seeing in the market right now though?
0: Boy, it's SBA financing, but since SBA rates are really high right now, uh, for seven A's, you know, they're 11, 11 and percent. Some banks are doing promo rates at nine or eight, nine, nine, eight, seven, five. Um, a lot more seller carry components, whether it's full seller carry or partial seller carry um and you nailed it as far as like deal structure it's uh to go back to those five plumbing companies you might have five different deal structures based on the personalities of the buyer and the seller and that's usually the accountants on either side driving that too like uh if uh some of those businesses have real estate involved their accountant might say like hey if you do this much seller carry we can do the tax game in such a way you know um so it's uh it's hard to say what's common but uh it's um yeah there is more seller carry since sba rates are higher but there's still a lot of sba funding going on
1: yeah i think a lot of people just imagine that it is as it's as simple or as black and white as uh, i'll just sell it one day and i'll just hand over the keys but in most cases I, i think I've been hearing and seeing that that's a lot more common lately is that there's, there's a lot more expectation of seller carry and a a longer transition period. Um, I've also been hearing that sometimes there's a, there's a potential of a larger multiple, if you are more willing to do that, there's kind of a, a trade-off, so to speak. Um, what are some other kind of trends that you're seeing in the industry, maybe in the last year that have shaken things up as far as the, the actual buyer side and the approach that buyers have.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about that a little bit about the seller carries. So a uh, couple things there allow for a higher price, uh, a seller willing to be the bank because that's what debt structure is, This cost of money at a lower percentage rate than 11. Let's say if a seller is willing to be the bank on half the note or half the debt for 6%, allows for more cash flow. So SBA loans that are 6% allow for more cash flow for a buyer, you know, money is just a cost like anything else. So um the higher your cost of money, the lower the price could be. If you make 200 grand a year and the business is 2 million bucks and the debt service is 150,000, that's 50,000 left over. Well, that's hard for a buyer to want to commit to all of that for 10 years and make 50 grand a year with it, they can just go be a manager at Home Depot. However, if the seller is to carry a note on a large portion of that or all of it, you know, then the, the debt service is 100,000 and the buyer gets to, to make 100 grand, then that opens up the buyer market and allows them to get a higher price too.
1: Yeah, I think it, it's just a good mindset to have to expect something like that as a seller because ultimately, you're, you're going to have access to more buyers, like you said, and you're, you're just going to end up probably cashing out on more over the lifetime of the actual sale than you would otherwise. And it just makes the whole process smoother. What are, um, what are maybe some, some hangups, some other hangups that you see at the end of a deal that you think could be avoided if people approach it the right way?
0: I think understanding. How a business can pay for itself. It'd be huge on both ends. I think buyers and sellers should be aware that uh, for most of these business transactions, it's a financial decision. They get really excited about a business. Some of these are bought as hobby businesses. You know, some are bought, or most are bought as a financial decision. Like, I'm going to leave the corporate world to buy this business and I need to make X amount. And there's this risk involved. Like there's a lot of calculations that goes into this, but at the end of the day, a business has to pay for itself and provide a living. So that's where sellers and buyers, uh, their eyes are bigger than their stomachs sometimes. Is that uh, they're like, my business is worth a million bucks, but a cash flow is fifty grand. It's like, well, that won't even pay the debt service on that. So also, they got to start thinking about opportunity cost of uh, of a buyer wanting to do something else. Like, well, just, you know, a common response for a seller would be like, well, if somebody came in with half a million bucks and put it down, and then I carried the note for half a million, and then that would make more sense. You know, that'd be like a 10% return on their money. It's like, like, well, if you got a half a million dollars, you can also put 10% down and buy a $5 million business. And that makes a couple million a year. So you got to look at, the market and expectations of what somebody's probably going to do in the financial paradigm. Like, okay, am I going to buy this business, be able to provide food for my kids, college educations, and that kind of stuff. I don't think people think about that out of the gate. So if they start thinking about things from that angle, they'll eliminate a lot of problems and a lot of frustrations of like, why isn't my business selling, you know? And, not just the financial aspect, but getting back into like how the owner's tied to the business. If the owner's working 12 hours a day and they're the expert, it's going to take somebody, a novice or a beginner, 20 hours a day. And what do you think a buyer's going to do? They're just going to be like, well, I I can't do that. Like, I just, I just don't feel comfortable. If the experts tied to the business 12 hours a day, it's going to take me 20. That's obviously not sustainable. So they're going to go look at other things. So, like how easily a buyer can get into your business with the knowledge gaps and all the things that the seller does also is can be a contributing factor to eliminate some frustrations in the process. So if you start planning now, and you work on these things over a couple of years, if you just work on a few things, great. Like if you work on one thing, sometimes they're just one thing. Like if the seller's not doing everything, like have one key employee that takes a few things off your plate, that makes it that much easier. There's no such thing as a perfect business. So also keep that in mind. Like sometimes when uh, people talk to you or me, we're like, here's this laundry list of things to do. It's like, well, there's no such thing as a perfect business because a perfect business doesn't need to be sold. You just collect cash while you're in Hawaii or Philippines or Europe or whatever, but but there's no such thing. Um, So if you work on some of these things, it makes it that much easier. And your business is more valuable too.
1: What are some red flags that you see on either the sell side or the buy side of someone who is just really has no shot of selling their business or, or a buyer who really has no shot of successfully getting the type of business transaction done that they're looking to get done?
0: Well, on the seller side, I would say a business that's been imploding. Let's just say life happens, circumstances happen, COVID happens. I mean, it's business. In the business world, a lot of things can happen. It's a lot of plates spinning on sticks and half of them fall over and your business just implodes. Let's like, just say that like, you were a restaurant during COVID and you lost all of your employees and you weren't successful in reopening. Like, That business is hard to sell when it's just assets in a building with the lights off. Like that makes it really, really hard. Um, so you could work on those things and reopen if you have it in you. Sometimes the sellers don't have it in you. And sometimes um, we're just work on some projects. Just give them a like, hey, if you do these few things, you'll get yourself in a sellable position. And there's usually some sort of help, but if they're just kind of like, ah, I'm done, then they're done. Then, then you know, then it's liquidation. Then it's usually a fight with a landlord, you know, something like that. Um, buyer side uh, I would say that's mostly a financial component because the buyers uh, usually are pretty excited to get into something and work for themselves work for themselves or um, so usually it's uh, they'd like to buy a ten million dollar business but they got five grand of their name so that's <laughs> that's that's usually pretty hard to deal with.
1: <laughs> yeah there's just a yeah. little bit of a gap there that they might need to
0: Right. Yeah. So, um, there's things that they can do. They can work with alternative lenders They can talk to family members. I mean, there's things you can do. Like if you do have a 401k, there's a ROBS program. It's a rollover business startup. You can use that penalty free to do a business startup. You can even combo it with an SBA loan. I mean, there's, there's resources out there. So like I, I talk with a a lot of buyers and sometimes we some piece and things together, a, a family gifts them a little bit of money, and that's the down payment for an SBA loan. Um, but yeah, it's usually the financial component for the buyers, though, is mm-hmm. that uh, it's not a willingness thing. Usually they're excited to, to go be their own boss and stuff. But um, uh, you it's the financial component. Um, and some things that some buyers could do is tie back to the SBDC is that uh, if you've only been an employee in a business and not aware of what it takes to run a business, there's some pretty elementary classes you could take to kind of better yourself, understanding financials and understanding like a profit and loss statement. Not just what the numbers mean, but all the levers that go behind revenues. Like you gotta you gotta have those revenues coming in in order to cover your expenses. Then you can drill down into like what segments of those revenues are coming in. Like what part of your offerings are bringing in what and what profit margin. To contribute to you know your fixed costs and what fixed costs and what other costs can you pull the levers on to to fine-tune so if you don't have an understanding of that at all it's it's possible but you're going to have to learn it regardless so you can either learn it after you own the business or you can learn it beforehand my my suggestion is learn it beforehand
1: now i thought of it an interesting kind of mental exercise to go through that I think could be interesting here say that because I I know you have sellers and buyers that come to you You help each with their respective sides for a buyer um, for a buyer of a business that comes to you who may be totally inexperienced let's say let's say some royal prince from some country just decides to come over with a, a huge sack of money and they wanna be a business owner and they really have no industry experience in anything. And they're just looking to get into an industry that is gonna work well, where they could put operators in place. Maybe, they, maybe they're just good with people and they're confident that they could put the right operators in place. What kind of industries would you tell someone in that position to look at?
0: Yeah, so if uh, said Prince has a big pile of money, you could look at any industry. So Um, odds are a big, robust business has management in place, probably multiple layers, and you don't need to know that industry because you have teams in place that are running the business already. So like, um, whether it's a giant transport company, whether it's a giant string of restaurants, but if they have management in place and it's a big, expensive business, and if you got a lot of of money to pay for it, odds are you don't need to know how to flip burgers to buy a burger empire. You don't need to know anything about trucks to buy a big transportation business, to buy a big freight forwarding business. You can buy almost anything with a big pile of money. You know.
1: Now for a buyer who does come in from a position like that where it's a great business and they, they bought it as an asset, how would you instruct them to to kind of come in and actually gain the respect of the people managing it, and and get over that hump of maybe not having the experience, but being the new the new boss and the new owner.
0: Well, um, that would be very business specific. So, like depending on what the roles of the current seller or owner are doing, they come in and fulfill those roles, and then and then uh, try to add to it how, however they can let just say that uh, it comes down to treating people right. Like if you know that this business has great three levels of management already in place, you go in there and just show them that they're valued and have conversations and be active. Let's just say that that person comes from a different industry. All businesses are kind of the same. As The higher you get up, the more, the more layers you have on top. It's all managing revenues and costs, right? Strategic direction, business growth, cutting costs, trying to you know fine tune things so, so if you bring that skill set with you and how to treat your leadership then you'll do well you'll do well
1: now i want to talk about another area that i have found is a common place that the buyers will get caught up on in the due diligence process what has been your experience with businesses that maybe have a, a customer concentration problem, or in other words, they're just not very well diversified. How do you usually coach people to, to work through that and to diversify themselves a little bit more if they might be relying too much on one or a few customers?
0: That's a great question. That's something that every buyer should be looking for and every seller should be working on. Um, Even the SBA has rules that if more than 20% of your revenue come from one customer, it requires further analysis. It's not a deal killer, but it requires further analysis. And that's just something that uh, should be paying attention to is the risk of the business. Let's just say that 50% of that business's revenue comes from one customer. What happens if that customer goes away? And that's some of the risks you got to encounter. And maybe the deal structure is evolved around that as well. So, I mean, if if that relationship's really tied to the seller and the seller leaves, then the buyer doesn't get that half the business. Well, then that really puts them in a, you know, not fun position, right? That's not setting them up for success. And uh, that much concentration is a big issue. Like, and that can be supplier concentration too. Let's just say you get all your widgets from one place and that place realizes that there's new ownership and they're like, hey, great, we've been wanting to uh, increase our rates, you know, but it is, that would kill the cash flow of the business, right? Or would hurt it, you know. Maybe it's a one percent increase, which ah, eh, no big deal. Maybe it's ten percent. It's like, well, maybe it's fifty percent. Then you're like, wow, that's a substantial, substantial hurdle that that new owner is going to have to make up for in sales or cost cutting elsewhere.
1: Yeah, I I had to learn the uh, the customer concentration problem lesson the hard way, unfortunately, in, in my business that eventually was sold. At one point we were within we were in the works for this deal with one of our customers that would have probably 10X'd our overall revenue. I mean it was going to be crazy. They just had they had a lot of work, but the deal didn't end up being able to go through because the the legal team said, well hey, this is gonna this is going to make our business that we're giving to them represent over 50% of their business. So we can't put ourselves in that position. And Mm -hmm. it's just like, you have to be considering that as a business owner, you have to be working with lots of different types of customers to put yourself in a effective position for risk management.
0: Yes, you want to be cognizant of that. And that'll hurt the sales price of the business or the deal structure. It's uh, the more you have that in your favor as a seller, the more, ideal deal structure you're gonna have for you, the more confidence the buyer is gonna to wanna to give you full price, especially up front. Because imagine, uh, I use a common analogy. It was like, you pay full price for a car because you write them a check, grab the keys and drive off in the car, right? Well, imagine if half that car is in boxes on the shelf <laughs> and the buyer is like, I don't know if all the parts are for that 69 Bronco are in those boxes. So I'm gonna give you half the money now then after I start putting this thing together over the next six months, if I realize all the parts are there, I'll give you the rest of the money. There's or there's going to be a holdback, or there's some other thing in there that the buyer wants to be sure that he gets the full Bronco. You know, so the the less it is all in one piece, and with the ability to drive off, the, the more you're going to see deal structure kind of alleviate those risks.
1: That's a great analogy. Do you have any other frameworks like that, or for other? parts of this process that you think kind of help a seller visualize the business the right way and begin to i guess for lack of better words just start packaging it up the right way for a sale
0: yeah i mean i got a concept that i love talking with sellers on and that's why like it's usually a series of conversations what i have with sellers like i'm not the guy that shows up with a a marketing agreement just, just says sign here sign here sign here no it's a series of conversations usually there's a few things they can work on but if a seller starts thinking about their business through the buyer's eyes, it'll help them. And if you're a seller that's five years, ten years, one year away from selling your business and start thinking about your business from a buyer's eyes, if they were to buy that business, they'll start to see the things that need to be worked on. That, oh, all my revenues from one person that I know is gonna leave, that that business is gonna leave with me. So that doesn't leave much business. So I gotta diversify my customer portfolio, or I don't have any systems and processes written down. It's all in my head. So I got to start writing those down. All my, all my widgets come from one place that place goes under, or that treats the buyer unfairly in this conversation, then I'm not going to be able to sell my business. So they can start working on those things ahead of time. So anything that they see, I mean, that could be in every, every seller knows their business inside now. And this, once they start thinking about, what kind of questions would I ask? How would I look at my business? Then they'll start fixing things almost immediately because they'll be like, yeah, I wouldn't buy this under that circumstance. Then they're like, I got to fix that. Then they'll go on fixing it. And that's how important it is. So just that overall concept, it just, it reflection, just be like, if I, seeing my business through a buyer's eyes or through my own eyes, you know, will put puts things like very clearly for them. That is like the most valuable exercise I could do with a seller.
1: It's the mirror check. I mean, a testament to how true that is. The same resource that I regularly send out to sellers to give them direction of what they want to start preparing for is something that I'll also send to people who are looking to buy a business for the first time or second time, whatever as a resource to say, hey, these are the types of things that you should be looking for in the due diligence process. It does really go both ways. And I mean, at the end of the day, a buyer just wants to buy a good business. So if you build a good business that, I like to say, build a business worth buying. It's just, if you put yourself in their shoes, you're going to start naturally seeing those things. But it also, I, I think a lot of business owners get caught up in the ego of it and feeling like their business. You kind of, if you have that extreme optimism that is kind of required to be an entrepreneur and a business owner, sometimes that can kind of get in the way of you seeing your business objectively enough. So it's just about having those conversations. Do you find people in that position?
0: Uh, yeah, and it's, uh, I love it. that is actually perfect. If they have that much confidence and ego in doing it, I just let them know they're like, well, you're almost there. Like you're almost there. And that is the truth. That is the absolute truth. So like if they built this big, robust business, and let's say that there's a a knowledge gap or a wealth gap from what they want, valuation gap, um, that that's, that's the type of person that's so confident that will get it. They'll, They'll work on things. And let's just say that I got a few listings in mind that they're working on things, right now that I'll get in two, three, four, five years, because they're going to go work on some things. And that's, uh, yeah. So that's fantastic. Uh, I love working with that kind of seller because that, that person is like the person I was just telling you about that, like I gave this book to, and they read half of it the first week. I was like, yep, that's, that's the seller that's going to get some things done and set their business up for sale.
1: Yeah. Cause you know, you could just give them a couple things to work on and you're just going to see them get done and they're going to get that much closer. You know, you can really help them.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, sometimes it's a specific industry that maybe and this is a concept that I love talking with sellers that if you have a big enough, a robust enough business, if um, if you want to open up the buyer market, open up to somebody that can buy that business from another industry. Let's go back to the prince with a bag of money. Like if you're a plumbing business or an HVAC business or a transportation business or whatever like that, and it needs your expertise. You hire out a manager then does somebody with that bag of money can buy your business as an investment well then you just open up your buyer pool infinitely like you just open it up to a whole bunch of people that have money there's a lot of money out there there's a lot of people looking to buy good businesses because they're looking for a good return and in the private private equity world there's no better return i mean that's what i've seen i think i think it's incredible and i love what i do there's tons of opportunities out there so if you open up your business Let's say it's your uh, building materials business or a plumbing business, and you open it up to somebody who can buy it that comes from whatever, the rental business, whatever. They they made a bunch of money selling a building or something like that. They don't have to have specific expertise to run your business. Boy, you just opened up your buyer market to a lot of people.
1: Yeah, I whenever I talk to someone and start framing things like that, just as, hey, if you position this thing just a little bit differently than it is now you could actually sell this thing for a lot of money that really that gets a lot of people to take massive action i think it's just such a good exercise i want to talk a little bit about you've mentioned a few times uh a, a few different industries that are kind of in this category that's getting a lot of talk right now the quote-unquote boring businesses. Why you know the the plumbing, the HVAC, trucking, flooring, construction, the things that are just everyday things that may not be the most sexy type of businesses but are important. Do you see a lot of buyers in those industries right now?
0: Absolutely. Yeah, because those are good, stable industries. They're gonna be around for a very long time. You know, it's it's uh we have houses of However, many ages and groups and stuff like that. We've had housing booms for the last hundred years and there's houses built in certain areas that need updating. So HVAC and plumbing, there's new houses going in HVAC and plumbing, electrical. I mean, there's always updates and infrastructure that wears out over time. So those quote unquote boring businesses are extremely important to us as a community and a society, like it's, they're stable, you know, they're not the Some of these dot com things, you know, are just bubbles or whatever like that. But if you want to have a good return over time and have a business you're proud of providing really good jobs for people that are providing for their own families, then that's not boring at all. Not even a little bit. That's pretty fantastic. That's what I think is sexy.
1: I love it. What is what is the thing that you're most excited for? about what you do right now? What what kind of drives you every day aside from, obviously you mentioned helping people, but the actual, like the state of the market and the industry, what's got you most excited right now?
0: Man, it's it's helping people. It's making those business dreams come true. That's my like monikers, helping business dreams come true. It's like, you got that seller that's, my unicorn deal is this, I got that seller that's been working in the business for 20, or 30 years. So I'm a bottom, and built it into something amazing. Some of these are built from scratch. Then I get that other person that's coming from the corporate world that just burned out. It was me before I got sick. And I helped them get into a position to buy a really good business and that's and they just completely changed the game for them. Go from like six figures in the corporate world to, you know, having that wealth where they get that summer home. Their college, their their kids' colleges will now be paid for. Like that's That's what I love. That's what I get excited about is becoming that matchmaker and just helping those dreams come true because no seller wants to be in their business forever. They just want They want to get out, give it to their kids. They sell it, give it to their employees, sell it to their employees. Those are all types of transitions. So helping them transition out and helping somebody get into a business and it takes care of their kids and stuff like that for the next 20, 30 years. That's, that's what drives me. That's what I love. And it's fun. It's nothing but problem solving. It's just a bunch of calculated moves, thoughtful planning. And I just love every minute of it. It's not boring at all. I just love it.
1: You mentioned the person in the corporate world that might want to get out and get into this game. I love thinking about that because it's just, it's, it's not, I mean, there's a lot of big businesses going around growing through acquisition. And I think, People can get a little bit turned off by this whole world as a whole when they think it's only that that's happening. But there really is a lot of opportunity for people to just get out and become first-time business owners. What What would you say to someone who maybe might not believe that they could be a good fit for that? Maybe they are in the corporate world and they've just never even considered that. If you just met someone at a barbecue that had been at, I don't know, let's say... I know a lot of people that work at Lockheed Martin here in town. They'll be there for decades, many times, because it's a great company, great retention, and everything. But let's say you meet someone at a barbecue that's just been in the corporate world for thirty years, and you start telling them about what you do. How does that conversation look like? What are what are the um, the things that you would kind of instruct them to think about or encourage them to think about to to see if they're right for this?
0: Well, that person that's been there for 30 years is probably gonna be a different kind of buyer. Let's just say that if you're, if you're that far into a career and that close to retirement, boy, write it out. That if you're bored in retirement, buy a business. Like, But if you're 10 years in and looking at 20 more and you're just like ripping your hair out because you're watching somebody making changes to your business that's running, looking at things in a spreadsheet in the East Coast, my corporate experience, um, then, yeah, start start thinking about what's out there. You can go to BizBy Sell Tworld.com. That's our website at Transworld. Just kind of see what's out there. Start having conversations. Get a couple books. If you get a little bit ready and just have a little bit of ideas of what financing looks like and what you can buy with, with, with the resources you got, then get ready. I mean, it's uh, there's a world of opportunity out there. In fact, We're gonna see one of the greatest wealth transfers in American history, maybe in the history forever. 70% of small businesses are owned by baby boomers. They're all retiring starting the last couple of years. So we're gonna see trillions of dollars in wealth that are gonna transfer and um, have an open mind. That's what I would just say, have an open mind. I mean, uh, sold a business to a young guy, motivated guy, super sharp, Uh, he bought a glove manufacturer Who would have, you would have never went to the market, been like, Hey, I want to go buy a glove manufacturer, but it was an amazing decades old business. He's doing well with it. He'll, he'll 10 X that, that was, it's, it's a great opportunity. So just, uh, be ready, have a good understanding of financials When I say good, just have a basic understanding. Like there's, there's Khan Academy, there's SBDC courses you can take. I mean, just in every county, where there's a community college, the SBA funds, these SBDs, the small business development centers, just go down there and have a conversation, call them, you make an appointment, they'll set you up and you can start taking courses over a couple of months. Just a little bit of coursework goes a long ways. And if you want to do that, well, then maybe you shouldn't buy a business. Anyways, that's, that's, that's the truth. like, if you won't go that little extra effort to, to alleviate a little bit of pain and then, cause that's, that's the downside is that uh, business ownership is that it's. It's hard. It's hard, but that's the true road to wealth, in my opinion.
1: I think so, so. too. It's, it, I mean, there's very few industries that you can work as an employee in your entire career and create real incredible wealth. There, I mean, they're out there, but there's there's very few, and it they're very competitive. So I think this is really the true road to wealth too. Um, yeah. I want to talk about that that point that you made about the the young man that was very sharp that wanted to just come in and work really hard i think that's a great avatar to focus on too what are the types of things that you would if someone like that came to to you in that position again what are the types of things that you would encourage them to be looking at in the businesses that you're showing them to understand whether it's a right fit for them and something that they can put a lot of firepower into as a new owner
0: something that they're passionate about. Have an open mind and look at industries that you're gonna be passionate about. Maybe you're not gonna be passionate about plumbing. Maybe you're not gonna be passionate about a coffee shop. Maybe you're not gonna be passionate about certain industries. Then just, if you have like a distaste for them, then just stay away from those, but have an open mind to what else might come out there. Who knows, maybe there is a plumbing business that is appealing to you, you know? Just, uh, Just like anything else, just be out there looking. you never know and never be hasty. So becoming an owner is a big, long commitment and it's going to require a lot of work. So find something that you can see yourself being successful in. Then, then get it and go at it and go get it done.
1: Any parting words that you would want to leave a potential buyer or seller with?
0: Yeah. Research. A little bit of research goes a long ways. And there's uh For the sellers, I got those books I can plug. That's be Walking to Destiny by Chris Snyder. He's the president of the Exit Planning Institute. You got the Getting the Most for Selling Your Business by Jessica Fialkovich. She's actually a trans world broker that started Exit Factor. A lot of good information in there. Um, That's probably for all businesses. This This other book is for lower middle market businesses. Let's just say 10 to 20 employees plus. Then of course, I love the e-myth. E-myth is like the standard book. If you want to know how to do something in business, a little bit of encouragement, this, this is it. So a little bit of research goes a long ways and it can make your business not sellable to sellable and more valuable just by working on a few things. And just remember, you don't have to do it all. Just do a few things. Just focus on a few things. And once you get those done, you might realize that like, Hey, one more wouldn't hurt.
1: I think that happens to a lot of people when they start working on these things. They find a new love for their business because they were burned out in the first place because they felt like they had no direction. But when they get a little bit of direction and have some success, they get some momentum and then they start realizing, wow, my efforts can really go a lot longer way than I thought and I can actually make these things happen. I know you talked about how you'll have some sellers come to you and, and find themselves in that position where they're... They're so ready to sell you give them a little bit of direction they're like actually man i I really appreciate it but i do want to keep working on this and maybe they'll sell eventually but they'll probably sell a much bigger business because they just got that direction
0: yeah there's uh it's not uncommon for me to fire myself as a broker (laughs) by uh having them work on some things and then uh which is say they untie themselves from the business a little bit then they finally get to do that strategic direction they've been wanting to do for the last 10 years because they have somebody else run the day-to-day and then they got a new love new passion new drive for it then yeah of course i'm out of the listing for down for the next few years but that's okay at the end of the day i just truly want to help people and i'll get that i'll get that listing eventually because obviously they're going to probably use the broker that helped them
1: exactly you become that kind of go-to source i guess one one other point i wanted to hit on before we part ways here today um we had talked a little bit off air about This is something I think applies to many, many industries. A big part of your success in this so far that you've talked about with me has been having COIs, um, kind of strategic COIs and, and creating a network and a system around that. Could you talk briefly on that, the importance of that and how you, how you might look to begin setting up that, that type of network in any industry?
0: Yes. Yeah. Um, COIs are centers of influence. And then if you have immediate needs, you probably focus on those COIs first. Like if you uh, you could just go down to, like let's just say you need to outsource your bookkeeping or something like that, or you don't even know where to start in this, you know, just go down and try to find a business coach, try to find a mindset coach or, or a nuts and bolts coach. Um, just go down to BNI, go down to Chamber of Commerce. I mean, there's a few resources out there that there's probably somebody running around there you know talk to a business broker business broker might tell you exactly like have a conversation about your specific business and then where you need to focus on most you know like if you got a glaring red flag you know like maybe or one or two of those you can focus on those then just f- find cois in that corner
1: love it yeah I, I think just having having good cois in whatever you're doing if you're in business development in any form or fashion just keeping in touch with people in adjacent industries to you, whether it be someone who's working with people one step behind what you do, one step ahead of what you do, or even in the same thing that you do, but in a different area or different specialty, I think just keeps, that, that just generates a large amount of deal flow and to succeed in business development and no matter what you're doing, you need to have a lot of deal flow happening.
0: Yeah. And there's, uh, lots of mentors out there. So sometimes you need a mentor. Sometimes you can be a mentor and just being a mentor means you can learn a lot about yourself and your business by trying to help somebody else That's you know, in this, in a similar space, like you said.
1: I love it. Anything else that you would want to leave the audience with today, Lonnie? Uh,
0: no, I think that's good. I think this should elicit lots of conversation and questions. And that's just something that we should work on a way for them to follow up with questions. We'll have more podcasts and stuff, but... Uh,
1: yeah, what's the uh, What's the best place for people to find you if they'd like to ask some follow-up questions?
0: Uh, I'm on all social media. So like Transworld has lots of good information. I post lots of good information. I'm going to be doing a series of videos and stuff. Uh, so find me on Instagram, uh, Facebook, LinkedIn. Um, tons of material there. And you can also email me to lwoodruff at tworld.com.
1: Awesome, and I'll make sure to link your information in the description or the show notes depending on where you're listening or watching. If you want to follow up with Lonnie, get ask some questions, figure out where you might be at in the in either the selling or buying journey and what kind of things what kind of resources might be at your disposal. Lonnie, thank you so much for sharing all that information today. This has been yeah, well- awesome.
0: W- would like to add on one more thing on that, that uh, like I'm I'm licensed here in Oregon, each state kind of has a license. We have real estate licenses. So if you're from another state, um, we have trans world offices in almost every state. So you could just Google trans world, whatever, Denver, trans world, Colorado, trans world, Texas, wherever you're at, and maybe find a local broker that can help things with your local area and the local market.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much. And I appreciate you yeah. being on today. This has been a very enlightening fun. conversation. A lot of fun. This is fun. Awesome. And that's a podcast.